We've been working our way through First uh, John before Christmas, and then we broke for a few Sundays over the Christmas holidays to focus on the Christmas message. We're going to come back to this and wrap it up here in January, the, our series through First John, uh, and we're going to be getting a new series at the end of January. But today we're going to be looking at First John chapter four, verses seven through sixteen. So you could we'll be putting the verses on the screen as well, but if you want, wanted to turn to it in your Bibles, that's the text for this morning. John is writing at a time when many professing Christians have kind of gotten sidetracked from the, the faith, they got off on tangents and their beliefs, they, they got kind of enamored with the the philosophies of their time, especially Gnosticism, and they, they were letting that infiltrate their churches and, and change the way they viewed things. They were also uh, battling issues within the church. And so John wrote this letter answering the question, how can a person know that they're really truly a believer? That's one of the questions, he, one of the main questions he's answering in this. And throughout this book, he gave three tests And these tests are a moral test, which is our righteousness, uh, a social test, which is how we love, and a doctrinal test, which is primarily focused on our view of Jesus and having a correct view of Jesus. And so we've seen these tests uh, recycled three times. This is the third time in the book that he's going over these three tests again. And, And the question might be asked now as we're moving toward the end of the book which of these tests is most important? And uh, in, in a lot of ways, that's a very incorrect question to ask because basically what John's saying is these things are all critical. If you want to know if a person's genuine believer or not, what do they believe? <laughs> you know, are they loving? And are they living obedient lives? And, and if you're, any one of these are missing, he's saying it's showing there's a lack in... in, in uh, their lives and, the, and their profession may not be right. You know, what, what happens if we isolate one of these things at the expense of the others? For, us, for example, James Montgomery Boyce asks it this way. He says, if we say doctrine's most important, we thereby imply that we don't need to live a righteous life or love one another as long as we have the right doctrine, <laughs> He says, that's definitely on the wrong track. He says, again, if we say love is the most important, we don't need to either be obedient uh, or have the right doctrine. He says, that's, that's wrong and dangerous. So what he's saying is, in one way, it's wrong to ask that question. But he says, but in another way, there's a, a sense in which that's, an, that's a question we can ask ourselves. And, and we can ask it in terms of our need, for instance, which do, which do we lack most of these three things? <laughs> or we can a- ask it in terms of John's interest, which one does he put the most emphasis on in this letter? And interestingly, if you were to ask it in terms of either of those two things, the answer probably goes back to love. <laughs> because that's what he focuses most on. He focuses on all three of these things. They're all three critical. You know, John's not saying that you can neglect right doctrine. He was the apostle who wrote the fourth gospel, 
And the purpose of that was that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's not, he's not going to minimize the truths about Christ. That's critical that we have the right doctrine. And, and uh, he said that if we neglect to live an obedient life, that the one who claims to know God and does not live in righteousness is a liar. You can't get much clearer than that. That's pretty straightforward. You can't say you know God and live in direct disobedience to Him, willful disobedience to Him. But he emphasizes love probably because that might be the greatest need that the churches he's writing to have. Some of them had wandered from the, 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 the faith, but a lot of them hadn't. And, and many of them were trying to live morally upright lives. <laughs> but when he looked at the church, he said, where's the love? <laughs> now, now, the same thing that seems to be the case in John's day, of course, affects churches today. And, and so we're, when we look at our church today, and I'm not talking about First Alliance Church, but we should look at it too. But as we look at our church, I'm talking about the American church Are we loving the way we should love? You know, maybe we have the doctrines down pretty well. Maybe we have, uh, maybe we're doing, we're living a fairly righteous life, but how, how are we responding to one another? This is the third time John's going to address this question of love in this epistle. He did it in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and chapters 3, verses 11 through 18, but nowhere does he go more into depth than he does in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Now, uh, when I started working on this passage, I was going to do a bigger passage, and uh, uh, Friday I cut it in half, and I took my first point and made it into three points. And so I didn't, I'm not going to begin to get through what I was going to cover this morning, but I want to talk about these first three things here. And um, the question I'm going to ask here this morning is why we love and the passage here gives us three reasons to love. And the first reason it gives us for loving one another is that love is God's nature. He says in verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, here John connects love with God in two ways. First of all, he says love comes from God. In other words, it, he is the source of it. He, he gives it to us. It's something he, he gives. And secondly, he goes further than that. Further than just saying it comes from God, he says, God is love. Now, th th this is more profound than the first statement, for with it, John's not just saying that God is loving, though that's really true, and he's not just saying that one of God's activities or one of his attributes is love, though that's also true. John's saying that God himself is love. Love is not just a quality that God possesses. Rather, love is the essence of his being. And that means that everything God does comes out of a loving heart. You know, we like to think that 
Well, God's got these different attributes. He loves, and he's holy, and he's just, and all these different kinds of things. But, but what John's saying here is that God is love. And by saying that, he means that God's holiness is loving. His righteousness is loving. His justice is loving. Everything about God comes out of a heart of love. Can you get your mind around this concept that God is love? And what does that mean? John Piper uh, explained it this way. Listen to what he says. He says, God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all the other perfections is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also overflowing. It'd take a while to unpack that, but just think about that. He says, God is so absolute, so perfect, so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful, that he is by nature a giver, a worker for others, a helper, a protector. In other words, it's God's very nature to pour himself out for us. What it means to be God, he says, is to be Full enough to always overflow, never need, never murmur, never pout. God is love. My, my paraphrase of what Piper's saying there is, since God has no neediness at all in him, and since he's overflowing with goodness, he can't, goodness, he can't help but give himself in all that he does. He can't help but be a giver. Daniel Fuller put it this way. He says, The moment we understand that God's need love is met in being a trinity, in other words, the needs he has are being met in the trinity, then we see that he is free to act toward us, his creation, solely in terms of a benevolent love. He says a striking way to represent this is to say that if God were to have created us out of need love, it would be like inviting us to a banquet only to inform us that we were one of the courses in the meal. In other words, we are there to meet his need. (laughs) But he says, but when God invites us to the banquet out of benevolent love, he wants us to join him as guests at his table to enjoy the feast with him, as the psalmist put it, to drink from his river of delights. Now, this is kind of hard for us to get our head around because most of our love comes out of a needy heart. We, We usually love because we get something in return. You know, we say, how do I love you? Let me count the ways. And as soon as we say that, we show that we're looking for some quality in the person we're loving to meet a need in us. You know, I love you because you're kind. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're my friend. I love you because you complete me. And on and on it goes. And in in these ways, a person is loved because in some way they have proven themselves worthy of love. And God's love isn't like that. fact is, it's such a different kind of love that there was a new word coined for it, and that's the word agape. God's love is not need love, it's gift love. And when God loves in the Bible, he doesn't say just I love you if or I love you because. God's love is not a response love. Actually, when he first loved us, there was nothing about us to make us desirable to him. We were sinners (laughs) when he reached out to us. Paul says this, he says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, most of us would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some of us perhaps might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showered his great love for us. He showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels in our hearts. Christ died for us. And what I'm saying is that God's love for us is not because of some redeeming value in us that makes us attractive to him. God's love was not a response to our loveliness. It was a gift of grace. You know, later in this chapter, John's going to say that we did not love God first. Rather, he loved us first. Why on earth would he do that? Why would he love us before we loved him? (laughs) Because it's his nature to love. And because God loves us like this, John says in verses 7 and 8 that we've been looking at, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, (laughs) for love comes from God. This is the kind of God we have. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. If you love like this, you're, you're showing evidence of being part of his family. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So John begins his argument for loving one another by pointing to the nature of God Love is from God, he says in verse 7, but even more than that, he says God is love. He then shares a second reason why we should love, and he talks about God's love as it's been demonstrated to us. He has shown us what love is, and he says this in the next three verses. He says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. He's revealing his love, what love, what real love is. He goes on and says, this is real love. (laughs) Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. How do we know that God is love? What's the evidence of it? Well, God's love is revealed in sending his son Jesus into the world to be a sacrifice to atone for our sins. God didn't just send his son. He sent his only son. (laughs) He didn't just send his only son. He sent him for the purpose of dying. The creator God, after having been spurned by his creation, had every right to turn his back on it. He chose instead out of compassion for us to take on himself the penalty for our rebellion and suffer in our place. A king dying for unrepentant traitors, (laughs) a creator dying for a rebel creation, a betrayed lover giving himself as a sacrifice to his betrayer. (laughs) And the question is, would any of us have done that? Would we have made those kind of choices? God wasn't obligated to do it. He didn't need to do it, but he chose to do it. God didn't need us. He was completely fulfilled in the Trinity. He didn't need us. He wanted us. You know, think about the magnitude of God's love demonstrated here. God did the unthinkable. (laughs) As any father or mother would know, this is the greatest possible example of love. Giving up a child is the thing, giving up the thing that is most precious to you, more valuable than anything else to you. And this is what God did for us. That's the measure of his love for us. We, we, we don't even begin to plumb the depths of what this means. And N.T. Wright says this. He says, standing at the foot of cross, the cross, gazing on length 
on the length to which God's love has gone for us. It is impossible, unless we're particularly hard-hearted, unless, as he says, we simply haven't known God at all, it's impossible not to sense the power and possibilities within that love. This is the force that has changed the world and could still change the world if only the followers of Jesus would really come on board with it. If we comprehend the depth of God's love, it's going to transform us and affect those around us. Verse 11 says, Since God loved us that much, surely we ought to love one another. John's point is that God's love demonstrates the kind of love we should have. Paul says in another book that we should have the attitude which Christ Jesus had, the attitude of considering others as more important than ourselves and looking out not after our own interests only, but after the interests of others too. Even as God took the initiative with undeserving people, we should take the initiative you know, how many conflicts in our relationships remain unresolved because no one will take the first step? Our pride gets in the way. We won't budge. We say, they're going to have to come to me. I'm not going to go to them. <laughs> if God had approached us that way, what would have happened? If it, you know, what if God waited for us to be willing to take this first step in being loving? The point is that God took the initiative, and if we want to be at all like God, we too must be willing to take the initiative in our broken relationships. You know, many questions about how we should treat others are answered if we just look at the cross. What do we do with that hateful neighbor who's making our life miserable? (laughs) While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What do we do with that church member who has deeply hurt us? We remind ourselves of the cross and love them with sacrificial love. What do we do with a rebellious teenager we have in our house? We are to love them with a love that cost us. (laughs) Stephen Covey, uh, a number of years ago, wrote the book, The Seven Habits, but then he wrote another book called Living the Seven Habits, and he shares stories of that. And and, uh, he, he shared a story about a family, and I just want to read this story to you real quickly here. He says, one woman said this. She she said, I'm a mother of several children. One of my sons got involved in destructive behavior as a teenager. We still had two younger children at home. He says, from being the handsome, clean-cut kid, he turned into a filthy young man, unkept, had long hair, would would leave it in thick tangles for a week without washing it. He pierced his ears and body in several places, and he came home with tattoos. He hardly ate, probably because he was on drugs. His eyes were bloodshot. His clothes was dirty and stank of cigarette smoke. Not only did he look dark and scary, but his lifestyle completely changed his personality. He became mean and non-communicative. He never made eye contact. He avoided family functions, and never answered unless it was just a snarl. His younger brother and sister became upset by his behavior, so, so much so that they, they would tell me, throw him out. He's ruining everything. His new friends were the same. 
Some of them were even gang members. She says, in the beginning, we actually, uh, in shock from having a kid like this in our home, began to analyze our parenting (laughs) to see if we could find holes in the ways we, we raised him. We contacted professionals. We talked to other parents to get sympathy and advice. We tried to talk and plea and threaten him to change. Nothing helped. In the meantime, we began to have another huge problem on our hands. The two younger children who were watching our daily confrontations were obviously being affected. It became evident that they were being hurt by what they watched. Our inconsistent behavior toward their brother because that sometimes we were showing love to him when he didn't deserve it was very confusing to them. And they began to say things like, well, if Darren can do this and you don't get mad at him, then I'm going to do it too. (laughs) And she talked about how this boy was destroying their home. She says our family was falling apart because of this one boy. All of our energy, all of our conversations, all of our work centered around him. We couldn't even go out to dinner without spending the entire time talking about him. And here we were raising two other children who desperately needed healthy, happy parents, and we knew we had to change our approach. She says, we then decided to sit down with each of Darren's siblings individually and tell them how much we loved all of our children, including Darren. We reminded them of the great kid he used to be and how he was going through a very difficult phase in his life right now, one that would probably embarrass him later. We even got photographs out to remind us of what he used to be like. We asked for their help and charitable attitude toward him. We told them that things might not appear fair, but that it was always necessary for us to show patience and forgiveness and faith in Darren so that he would be able to overcome his problem. We explained to them how drugs can completely alter behavior and that what they saw wasn't completely, wasn't all there was to Darren. It was just a part of him. And that what he had chosen was very destructive. It was hurting our family, but it was also hurting him. We talked about the good things he was missing out on in school and in his social life and what a terrible shame this was. She says, at first, they, they actually begin to feel a little sorry for him instead of just angry or frightened by him. Throughout the following year, we repeated this kind of one-on-one talk several times with the younger children and as need arose. She says, it wasn't easy for them. But now they're able to send little signals to us whenever Darren's in the room and acting up that clearly testify to their understanding of what we all need to do. When we got far enough along in this process of beginning to understand and forgiving and a non-judgmental attitude and did special things for Darren, even when he didn't deserve it, the younger two followed right after and did the same, it totally blew Darren away. Why were we being nice to him when he was being so rotten? Within the next year, he began to change. The younger kids also were affected. They actually have become more charitable and have a greater understanding of people and their problems as a result of their choices to basically minister to a wayward brother. 
He says, I really don't think there is one thing in our lives that has challenged us and made us grow more than our son, Darren. Now, I don't know if Stephen Covey's a Christian or not. I don't know much about what his spiritual background is. I don't know where he's coming from, but that's a picture of the power of sacrificial love. And, and this isn't necessarily even from a Christian perspective in this illustration. But how much more should that characterize us as followers of Christ? We should love one another because that's how God has loved us. doesn't mean there's never a place for tough love. It doesn't mean anything like that. But it does mean that we need to go much further in showing love. You know, when we say that person's wronged me and doesn't deserve my love, that may be true, but we didn't deserve God's love either. And God didn't love us because he found us appealing or worthy of love. He didn't say, John is such a wonderful person, I think I'm going to love him. <laughs> Christ died for the unworthy, the helpless, the, wor- the, the hopeless, while we were yet sinners, while we were still rebels, he died for us. And if we've been recipients of that kind of love, we have to ask the question, has that love been shed abroad in our hearts? <laughs> has it come in us and through us as a result of Jesus' work in our lives? If it has, we can do no less than love in the same way that he's loving. We should see those who are difficult to love as Christ sees us. Love like God's is a sacrifice. Love like God is, takes the first step. Love like God is selfless. God is love. He demonstrated his love on the cross. He continues to demonstrate it in the believers by working through them, showing love to one another. If self-giving, sacrificial love is not the core of our being, then there's something missing if we are united with Christ. That's John's big idea here. Now, I want to take us off on a little tangent here because I ask myself, you know, why do we fail to love each other so often? And and I think one of the main reasons we fail to love is we don't really walk in each other's shoes enough to really care. Compassion is more than just carrying out a helpful act. It, it's entering into another person's story. It's too often our failure to love is because of our inability to really empathize and feel what somebody else is going through. Bill Hybels a number of years ago wrote a book called Nobody's Looking. And he shared a story out of his own life. And, and I know that Bill Hybels is dealing with issues in his own life right now. And, and uh, he's not a good example to hold up. But This story really relates, and there's nothing wrong with his story. But he shared uh, about how people too often can look at people who are hurting and broken or upset and say they seem to have a big problem. They can analyze what's going on. And he says it's much easier for us to analyze other people's problems than to feel them or enter into them with them. And he gives this example. He says, a few years ago, and this was written a number of years ago, this book was. He says, Lynn and I went to see Sophie's Choice. He says, it was a rather heavy psychological drama. Part of it was set in a World War II extermination camp. And he says, 
a barrel of laughs for the evening, right? He says, but it was a date, and I was feeling like a teenager on a date with the prettiest girl in school. I bought popcorn, put my arm around my wife, and we settled back at the movie, and I was looking for a good evening out. He says, about three-quarters of the way through the movie, the movie started to get really intense. And then it comes to that point where, where Sophie's holding her two children in, in her arm, having to decide which one to hand to a Nazi officer for, to be incinerated. <laughs> And he says, this got to be a pretty heavy drama. And I thought, it's getting a bit long, though. And he says, I wondered if the popcorn stand was still open. And I thought about going to get another box of popcorn. He says, but when I turned to Lynn, I noticed she was sobbing, and I decided to wait to get the popcorn at another time. Good choice. He says, as we walked back to the car, I could tell that it was no time for cracking jokes or being funny. We drove home quietly, went to bed without saying a word. He says, I didn't know what was wrong with her until a day and a half later when she finally told me, I want to tell you why I was so upset by the movie. She said, I was picturing having Todd in one arm and Shauna in another (laughs) and having 30 seconds to choose which one was going to live and which one was going to die. He says this, he says, Lynn had not only put on Sophie's moccasins, she had crawled into her socks, her dress, her bonnet, and became Sophie for a little while. And he goes on and says, this didn't happen to me. And, and this is the key phrase I want you to think about. He says this, I stayed outside the character skins and watched the drama unfold. And I think, how many times do we do that when people around us have needs, Right? We might touch them, care about them a little bit, but do we stay outside the characters' (laughs) skins and watch the drama unfold? He says, in fact, it did not immediately understand why my wife was so powerfully affected. Empathy doesn't come naturally to us hard-hearted people. He says, "We, we, we have to slow down and make a determined effort to put ourselves in other people's shoes. We need to ask ourselves, how would we feel in their situation? How would you feel if you were handicapped, unable to walk, to dress yourself, to drive, to even find a good seat in church because of your wheelchair? How would you feel if you were unemployed and you had a mortgage to pay and car payments and worrying about if you could provide for your kids? How would you feel if you were divorced or widowed or lost a child or a parent? How would you feel if you had cancer or Alzheimer's, or AIDS. And he says, when, when we take the time to empathize, to walk a mile in someone else's moccasins, a few cracks begin to appear in the concrete surrounding our hearts. He says, as I've been saying this, though, tenderheartedness has to go beyond feelings, he says. It's vital that we start seeing people as God's treasures, It's important to learn to empathize with them. But how should these feelings be expressed? Should I slobber all over people? Should I give away the store? Should I sell my house and join the Peace Corps? What what does a tenderhearted Christian do? He says, in a nutshell, the Scriptures tell us to treat people the way Jesus treats you. When you pray, the Lord listens intently to every word you say. Why not treat your spouse that way, your children that way, your friends that way, your coworkers that way? Slow down. Turn off the television. Close out the distractions. Say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to give you my attention. 
He says, when you make a mistake, Jesus lifts you up and forgives you and continues to treat you with love and respect. Why not do that for the people with whom you work and worship? When you feel lonely and insecure, the Holy Spirit stays by your side and comforts you and assures you of God's love. Why not comfort and support the people you love when they're going through difficult times? What will happen if we hard-hearted people begin to see people in God's eyes, walk in their shoes, treat them the way Jesus treats us? He says the result will be unbelievable. Our superficial friendships will deepen. Our churches will multiply in effectiveness as people discover they can love where Christ is worshipped. When you have been a recipient of the kind of love God has shown, the only appropriate response is to love others with the love you've been given. Verse 11, dear friends, since God has loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. Christ is our example of love and His love led him to act on our behalf so we too should act on other people's behalf. I'm past the hour. Uh, Let me just summarize the last point in just a couple sentences because I don't have time to go through it. The third phrase is why we should love each other is that God's love is in us and he says this, no one has ever seen God but if we love one another God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us I like that phrase his love is brought to full expression in us and God has given his spirit as proof that we live in him and then skipping down to the last verse it says God is love and all that live in him all who love live in God and God lives in them a real key to being able to love Another reason we should love is God is in us. You know, as we um, transition here to communion, I just want you to ask you to be asking God to kind of take inventory in your life. What, what's happening in your life, in your relationships? So many places where Christians are are known more for turmoil than they are for love. And, and it seems that we, we suffocate our me- message if, if we cease to really love the way God wants us to love. I'm impressed that God shows his love to the world through what Jesus did at the cross, but he also shows his love to the world through how he works through believers' lives. And that's what these verses are saying. And so we want to be a testimony to our world and our community as to the reality of God, and we do that by going further in loving people than even the people around us do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've talked about this passage on love, I just pray that you'd help us to understand the significance of it for us and help us to be true mirrors of Christ as we reflect your love to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.